The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. We're reading today from Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamer the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamer, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride, and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamer. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to, circum- to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man who was the most honored of all his father's household lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will consent to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property and all their other animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them, and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamer and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else in the city and in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, 
I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? At this point, I'll just ask you to stand as we join in prayer together. Father, we thank you for your word. And today's word is hard. It's difficult things to hear, terrible things to hear. And yet we know that all your word is God-breathed and it's useful for correction, rebuke, and teaching. You use it to help us know you more and who we are in you. You use it so that we can handle the word of God correctly. So today, Lord, we ask for you to bless us with the wisdom we need to see you in this passage and the truths that are meant to shape our understanding of you and our lives with you. I thank you for the truths you've helped me to see over this coming week, and I ask that you use my thoughts and my voice to express those today clearly. In the precious name of Christ, amen. Please be seated. My name is Doug Friesen. I'm one of the pastors here at White Ridge Baptist Church, and uh, I was blessed by the church to have three months of sabbatical and to enjoy some holiday along with that. And as of June 9th, I'm back here, and it's so good to be back seeing people in the church throughout the week, and uh, those of us here this morning, uh, so glad to see you. Uh, the church has asked that I share a little bit about my sabbatical, and I gladly tell you about ways that I encountered the love of God over my journeys. Um, some of you may remember that a big chunk of my time was meant to be overseas. I was hoping to use 10 weeks to uh, get to Europe, take a cruise from Fort Lauderdale to Barcelona, spend six weeks in Spain, five, a week, five weeks would have been walking through the northern part of Spain on the Camino de Santiago. Then I was planning on meeting my niece in Greece for a week and then going to Romania where I was invited to teach at a Cape and Revival school uh, before coming home. So those were my plans, and now I get to share with you reality. And uh, so this is what took place. Uh, thankfully, I was able to do the cruise. I left on March the 1st and landed in Barcelona on March the 13th. It was on the 12th that uh, President Trump announced that all flights out of Europe except for the UK would not be accepted into the States. That's when the cruise ship off California was not able to dock because of COVID. Uh, but we on the boat were treated really well, and the whole journey went fine. Um, people were nervous on the 12th because they didn't know how they were going to get home, and I was thinking, I still have two months. I'm here till May 12th, so I don't need to worry about this. Little did I know. So the next morning, we're docked in Barcelona, and uh, I go up to the top deck, and I was going to have just my time in God's Word. And I remember looking at the, the mountains, and on top of one stretch of mountains, there was this fortress. And I just remember thanking God for being my source of security, my fortress. I opened up my Bible, and I continued reading from where I was the day before, and I entered Psalm 121, and this is what I read. I look up to the mountains. Does my strength come from mountains? No, my strength comes from God, who made heaven and earth and mountains. God's your guardian, right at your side to protect you. God, God guards you from every evil. He guards your very life. He guards you when you leave and when you return. He guards you now. He guards you always. And I just thank the Lord for that beautiful truth. And it was so important for me over the next few days just to continually remember that my life, as of all, as of, all of yours, is secure in God. So I uh, 
Got off the boat by noon. I was at my Airbnb, dropped off my luggage. I'd put a SIM card in my card, uh, my phone, so I was getting all my emails now that I hadn't had for 13 days and messages. And I thought, ah, I'm gonna worry about that later. I'm going sightseeing. So I went and I walked for probably about four or five hours just exploring uh, Barcelona. And uh, it's a beautiful city, but I was really surprised at how few people uh, I encountered there. It was not many, and I thought, I guess it's just low season. It wasn't really hitting me what our world was entering into. And uh, so I got back to my, uh, the Airbnb around 6 o'clock, and I checked my messages, and I saw that two of my hostels had canceled on me. And I thought, oh, that's unfortunate, but you know, I'll just send them a message just to try to find out why. I was just wanting to make sure there weren't any issues in the northern part of Spain. And so uh, I heard back within half an hour from the first place, and they said, as of Monday, we have been told that all communal lodging will be closed for an indefinite period of time. So the Camino is, in fact, not going to happen. That's what they, they said. We'd love to have you here, but you can't. And so, again, I got there at 12 by 6.30. I knew I wasn't doing the Camino. 6.45, I had another email from the other place. He added to that, if I was you, I'd get, of our, get out of our country ASAP. And so, um, so I thought, well, you know, I have six weeks to spend because my niece is coming in six weeks. I'm teaching. What am I going to do? Uh, I wasn't at all thinking of going home. So I sent a message to the school in Romania, and I sent a message to a friend who lives in Paris just saying, Hey, I got six free weeks. Um, can I come your way, use part of my time with you? And uh, I was so thankful that, uh, so this was now probably 7.30, I got a message from Romania. The gentleman's name is Jerry. He said, Doug, you're welcome to come and stay here. You just need to pay room and board while you're here, $25 a day. The Mennonite in me said, praise the Lord. I can handle that. And I thought it would be really nice because I can develop relationships with them, explore that beautiful country. But then he texts back, he said, have you been to Madrid already? I said, nope. He goes, because if you've been to Madrid, you can't get into Romania. Actually, Romania's restrictions are increasing as things in Italy get worse. We have 80 cases of COVID so far, and as soon as we have 100, we're going to level three, which I came to learn meant no non-essential travel. So right away I thought, oh, you know what? I guess at least for the first few weeks, I won't go to Romania, let this kind of go through and then maybe I can go. So I called my friend now in Paris instead of just texting. I called him. He answered and he said, Doug, you know you're always welcome here. Come whenever you need to. Okay, perfect. It's 8 o'clock. I'm hungry. I go out for supper. Have supper. I get back at 9.15 and as soon as I get through the door, my host comes and says, Doug, my dad called and he says, you need to get out of the country now. And I said, why? She said, well, we've just been told that the government officials are going to be meeting tomorrow morning, and the common consensus is as soon as their meeting's done, all travel in and out of Spain is going to be banned for an indefinite period of time. So we looked for flights. The first two I tried, I put my passport info, all my info, my credit card, and it did this little searching symbol, and then it said, no tickets available. Twice that happened to me. Then, thankfully, by God's grace, I got a flight at 9.20 in the morning. Remember, I just arrived at noon. <laughs> so now it's about 12, it's about midnight. Actually, before that, I called my niece and I just said, I said, you know what, I'm going to do my very best to stay in Europe, but there's a chance that I might have to come home depending what COVID's doing. So, you know, can you ask your mom to look if I can change my flight from May 12th to sometime in March, just in case I need to do that. And she said, yeah, I'll do that. And uh, she'd be praying for my wisdom about how to proceed. 
So uh, now I've got my ticket at 9.20 at, uh, in the morning. My host says, you're going to have to take the train to get to the airport. You need to catch the train at least by 6 o'clock just so that you're not stressed. I decided not really to sleep. I was kind of a bit worried I might sleep through my phone. So I just canceled all the plans I had made for Spain, six weeks worth of plans. Canceled those things. Thank God that I was able to do that. And I left for the train at about 5.30 in the morning. And so I got, left, got the train to the airport and everything went fine. I'm waiting for my plane and I was just glad to see that there was still movement on the tarmac. And uh, I sit down, I get a coffee, and I'm waiting for my flight, and I get an email from Al Donald, who's a member of our church and overlooks the insurance that we have as uh, pastors in our church and our conference. And the email said three things. It said, uh, if you get on a cruise ship, there's no insurance for you. And I'm like, oh good, the cruise ended yesterday. I said, if you go to a country that's not level three, but becomes level three, you have insurance, but get home as soon as you can. Okay, I'm glad that I'm not going to Romania because that's probably going to change overnight. And then it said, if you go somewhere that is level three, you have no insurance. And right then I realized, I don't think I'm going to Romania. I don't know what the future holds, but I really don't think I'm going to be teaching. And, and I was a little, a little bit disappointed at that thought. So I sent a message to, to Jerry, and I, uh, this is a gentleman in Romania, and I just said, you know what, uh, I just heard I won't be insured if I go someplace that's level three, you're most likely going to be that soon. I think we need to plan that I might not be able to come. And he texts back almost right away and he said, you know what, we've already been thinking the same thing. Don't worry, you do what you need to do. We'll be okay with the teaching here. We can take care of that. Then that was the message and I was like, okay, good. Well, I'm glad that's okay. Then the next message comes and the message just says, uh, Doug, we do want you to come and teach here at some point. So we're gonna look at the calendar for next year and the year after and we're gonna give you some opportunities to come back. And I said, oh, Lord, you are so gracious. Because this sabbatical was all about being in awe of God by nature and the people I'd meet. And it was also with the hopes of making a connection with this Caperonry school. So I was very thankful for that. So get on the plane. It's non-eventful. Get to Paris. Uh, arrive at my friend's place around noon. We go for a walk, have lunch. I come back and uh, I call my family. And they all said, Doug, we've been talking about this. We think you should come home like now. Don't be waiting any longer. And so we looked at flights and changed my flight from May 12th to March 23rd. That would give me almost a whole week with my friend who said that he wanted me to stay with him for a while. So that was great. I thought, great, I can relax in Paris now and just, yeah, just decompress and enjoy it. So the next day is Sunday. And uh, my friend needed to work from home in the morning. I went for a walk. I got back at 12.30. And he comes and he says, Doug, at 11 o'clock, the government made an, uh, an announcement that as of noon, we're level three. I had just been in the country 24 hours. I have my insurance, but we're level three. I said, oh, that's okay. That's good. What does that mean? It means no one's going to work. Most stores are going to be closed. Restaurants are closed. Grocery stores are closed. They haven't told us really what it's going to look like. Okay, I said, but you know, I just came through and the stores were open, the markets were open. Well, he goes, usually on Sundays, things were open till two, so most people probably didn't hear, and at two o'clock, everything will close. So we went and we bought food for the next 10 days. And we came back and I just, again, was thankful, Lord, again, you've provided for us, thank you. Uh, Monday, my uh, friend had to go into work with his job, so again, I went for a walk. And uh, when I come back, I'm thinking, you know what, now that we're level three, 
maybe I should look at a flight that's sooner than like uh, next Monday, like the 23rd. And so I looked at flights and uh, I had looked at a flight on Friday, March 20th, the day before, but it was said it was sold out. Now there was another flight there and, I, and it was reasonably priced. And I think, oh, you know what, I'm gonna try for this. So I, I do that all, I actually get to pick my seat and I'm like, I think this is gonna work and boop, boop, get my ticket. You wouldn't believe it, the tickets on the, just the previous days, the Monday and Tuesday, were $1,500 a piece to get home one way. And I got my ticket for 560 Canadian. And I, Lord, thank you. Even if I don't use that ticket on the 23rd and I have to suck up that price, that's fine. Thank you for bringing me home. My sister sends me a message probably five, six hours later saying that WestJet has now announced that as of Sunday, all international flights will be canceled. My flight for the 23rd didn't even go. And so I look at this whole experience and I just thank God again and again for him being my protector, my provider. And I won't tell you much more except that it was a very unique experience to walk around France when no one was really supposed to be out except for exercise. I walked around the Eiffel Tower. I saw many, maybe 20 people. Uh, the thing that was probably the most interesting is the day before my flight, I thought I better check that the subways are working. So I go down into the subway system and I was down for about 15 minutes and on my side of the subway, I didn't see anyone. I found a place where I could see the, the subway going and on that one I saw one person and when it left I saw another person walking away. And so it was a very uh, unique experience. I always say my father knows I like adventure and he gave me that and I thank him for it. And I wanna thank all of you for praying for me. I know that many of you were thinking about me while I was away and, and I, I don't take for granted that we have a love among us as brothers and sisters and that our prayers are meaningful for one another. And I wanna thank you for that. And, and with that, I also wanna thank you for how you've cared for me uh, in my health. And uh, you know what, I just wanted to share, some people have asked me about being disappointed and how all my plans changed. And the phrase that I've continually said is this, uh, you know, I've been a bit disappointed, but I've not been discouraged, and I definitely have not been disgruntled. God has been overly gracious. And again, I thank you for your prayers. Uh, I also wanna share with you a health update. I shared uh, this with you just before I left. Uh, many of you know that I was diagnosed with what's called follicular lymphoma in April of 2017. At that time, they found out I was stage four, which means that the cancer is throughout my chest, my abdomen, my groin, and it had entered into my bone marrow. It's a slow-growing cancer. Uh, it's something that you usually have two to five years before you need chemo treatments, and I was a healthy person. They said it, I'd probably be closer to that five-year mark. Um, over the next months from April 2017 till about the end of November, my fatigue was getting worse. I could notice that. One night, I, I know the Lord just woke me up and uh, he just put on my heart, Doug, you've never prayed for healing. It wasn't because I didn't have faith for that, but it was just from day one, I thought that the Lord might use my sickness to, so that I could be a source of peace for others and also that I might grow in my dependence of him. I just believe that to the core of my being. And so, that night, I woke up, I kneeled at my bed, and I said, Lord, sorry for being presumptuous. I want whatever you want for me, but what I'd love is to have the health to see our church transition to this new building, and I'd love to have the health to enjoy my sabbatical. And by God's grace, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, that following December, um, I had CT scans, 
and they said, in fact, my cancer has not spread at all, it had been receding. It hadn't gone away, but it had receded by 50%. And since that time, my energy started coming back and I've been feeling really good and I've had all the strength and uh, uh, health that I've needed for the transition and my sabbatical. So now coming home, I've just kind of expected that at some point, cancer will just kind of continue on as normal. I was thankful that my doctors this last Christmas said, Doug, what's happening in your body's not normal. We'd like to do the scans again just to see where the cancer's at. And so last Wednesday, I went in for my CT scans, and then this Thursday, I had an appointment with my oncologist. And it's good news. It's actually very good news. Uh, and my cancer has not only... Uh, not increased, it's even receded further. And they said, we don't see evidence of the cancer in your chest, and we don't see evidence of the cancer in your groin. There's evidence in your abdomen, but it's less than when you were first diagnosed. And so God has been really gracious. Thank you for that. <clears throat> and what I want to just express in this is that we have a God who is sovereign over sickness. And we just have to trust God with what takes place. So right now, he's given me renewed health, and I thank God for that. But in time, if this cancer grows, as it probably will, if he doesn't intervene, I will need to also go through that journey of trusting God, saying, you're sovereign in this as well. And your purpose is for you to be glorified so that others might know you. Lord, I know you already. Do whatever you need through my life to help others know you. So God is sovereign over sickness. And the tie-in to today's passage is that God is also sovereign over sin. And, and that's sometimes hard to imagine, that God is sovereign over sin. But this passage, this whole chapter 34, this whole thing is just a sinful story of what took place when God's not a part of it. I just want to make it really clear that this chapter is this descriptive of actual horrific events. This is what takes so much of the Bible just tells us this is how life is when I'm not in the picture. And when God's not a part of something, even when it's by his chosen people, even in today's society, when it's by his church, when we don't acknowledge God in what we do, it goes to sin right away. It becomes horrific. It's a terrible testimony. So the other thing to know is that this is not prescriptive. What happened in this passage is not saying this is how it should have been done, and God is not endorsing what took place. That's very important to understand. This chapter is a black mark that God was still able to work through. So today we're going to be talking about dealing with sin, and this is really a, a whole bunch of negative example of that, which hopefully drives us to say, Lord, how should we deal with sin properly? And so the first point is how we deal with sin does matter. Uh, I think it was a week or two ago I was reminded of a quote by Martin Luther King Jr. And he just says this, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. That's beautiful truth, wise words. 1 John says something similar. It says this, 1 John 2, 9 to 10. Whoever says he is a light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. It means that light and darkness are opposed to each other. And as believers, we need to also remember that 
when we say that we're walking with Christ, if in our heart we have hate towards someone else, we are deceiving ourselves that we're in that light. And we are, we are not being the testimony of Christ when we harbor or fester those, issues, those things of, of hate towards anyone else. So the solution to darkness and hate is not to retaliate with more darkness, with more hate. The only solution to darkness and hate is light and love. That's what God has for us. And the reality is if we choose not to do that, it might seem like the right thing to do because our emotions tell us, I gotta fight against it the way that I was treated. I need to treat them the same way. But we know from this passage that sin escalates. It was a horrific, terrible thing that Dinah was raped. All throughout the Bible, we know that rape is wrong. Actually, sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is wrong. But this was defilement. This was dishonor of her. And something unjust was done and should have been addressed. There's definitely that needs to be done. But the way that the brothers dealt with the, their anger was sinful. And they focused on deception. It's interesting to think that we know much about Jacob and how Jacob's life was full of deception before, and now we see it in his sons. Our, our example does have impact on others. And so they used deception, and they broke actually trust based on their word given to people, a trust that was established there, and they used their deception that, to cause death. And people that deserved to have, there was a situation that needed to be addressed, but what they did was even worse. And they killed all the men of the city, they plundered everything, and then they took the women and the children as their own. It was just horrific. So sin escalates. That's why darkness can't beat darkness. Hate doesn't beat hate. We need the love of God and the truth of God to combat sin. Uh, we have a little bit of wisdom here as far as like what should the, the brothers have done. I don't know the answer for that exactly. But the, but the Bible does tell us a few things about what we should do when we have anger. Whether that anger is, sometimes anger comes from a bad place. Other kinds of times it comes because there's a righteous anger. Like when Dinah was raped, that's a righteous anger. That shouldn't have happened. So anger can be good. What we do with it is important. It can lead us to sin or it can lead us to do something very positive. Psalm 4 verse 4 says, you can be angry, but don't sin. Think about it as you lie in your bed and calm down. Don't let your passions dictate what you do. Let those passions direct you towards Christ. Don't let them direct you away from him. Calm down, lie down, and then think about what God would have you do. And we know that in Romans 12, Paul says this, Romans 12, verse 19, he says these words, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. But I'll tell you, sometimes when there's injustice done, and especially if it's to someone I love, that's hard to obey. I'd rather say, but Lord, didn't you also say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Can't I at least go that direction? And then the Lord reminds me, Doug, remember why that was written? It was written to limit revenge, not to prescribe revenge. It was written in a different time, to a different people, in a totally different situation. 
You are now in an era where you have the Holy Spirit in you. Christ has come to bring salvation to the world and you can trust me that no one gets away with evil. Even if you think it looks like they are, they aren't. Trust me, don't take revenge. Leave that up to me. But Lord, what am I supposed to do? I feel helpless if I don't do something. I feel frustrated if I don't do something. What should I do? And Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do I live that out, Lord? It's not right. I don't, it doesn't feel right just to, to just do good. What does that mean? But the Bible says, don't try to overcome evil with evil and retaliation or revenge. Overcome evil with good. And can I suggest as a church that we need to be thinking of this more proactively than reactively. If we're always waiting for bad things to happen, then how do you do with it? But we know things are going to take place in this world. We as a church have the responsibility and the privilege to be light and love in this world, to be ambassadors of justice and mercy ahead so that things are less likely to take place, that people are less likely to be violated, defiled, hurt. As a church, let's think about ways that we can invest ourselves now so that less evil happens because we're the light and the life of Christ where we go. I think that's one of the challenges and, and again, one of the hopeful things that God invites us to be a part of. So we've talked a little bit about how we deal with sin matters. Now I also just want to talk about sin in the subplots, sin in the smaller stories that we see in Scripture. There's no doubt that the sin is clear in this chapter. If you can't see sin in this chapter, there's something wrong. (laughs) It's very clear, right from the get-go, how Dinah's treated by Shechem is just horrific. Uh, rape, again, is, should never happen. But then he, he's not even really apologetic about it. He goes and he just says, hey, I'll give you whatever you want so she can be my wife. Now, I do have to say there are cultural contexts there that do make a difference in understanding that than in our day and age, but none of it comes close to saying, oh yeah, what he did was fine. Maybe, maybe some people would say, well, in their culture, that's the way it was because she would have been in an arranged marriage. He loved her. The only way that he could really be with her was to do something like this and put dishonor on the family so now they can make an arrangement for him to marry her. Okay, however those things go, it doesn't matter in the big picture here because it was all wrong. And so we see sin, and, and we can get caught up in saying, what do we do about that? Just like the brothers, instead of being... Uh, rightfully angry about that defilement and that dishonor and then turning to God saying what should we do they made their own plan and they said you know what this is what we want to do we're going to use something that is a symbol of God's covenant with it we're going to use it as a point of deception and when they're at their weakest when they've done what we've asked them to they circumcise themselves and they're at their weakest we're going to go and we're going to kill them all Simeon and Levi are the two brothers. They were the full brothers of Dinah. They're the ones who had that master plan. Premeded murder right from the get-go with the, with the deception of, yes, let's be one with each other. Horrific. So those are the things that really grab our attention, and they should. And what we need to be reminded of is that when we're stuck in sin, you know, it's easy to look at things from the outside and say, oh, that's obviously wrong. But when you're in that situation yourself, 
it's easy to start justifying things. I would guess that if some of you had that terrible experience of having someone in your family misused, whether it was rape or whatever, you might say, well, I'd never do that, but you'd want to do something probably that might not be in line with the love of Christ to, to just have revenge. This is on the far end. This is the most horrific you can really imagine is that they slaughter everyone, take plunder the city. 500 to 1,000 people lived in that city at this time. We don't know exactly, but around that many. And it was just terrible. So it says, all a person's ways seems right to him, but the Lord weighs the motives. So it's not a wise thing for you just to check your spirit and say, yeah, this seems wise to me. I think this is what I should do. We always need to bring ourselves to God and say, Lord, would you help me check my motive? Can you help me know what to do? Because in this situation where I am so overwhelmed with anger and the desire for revenge, I don't know what to do. And we need to seek God for his help and then to remember that he is sovereign and that he will take revenge and not ours. As we talk about sin in the subplots, I just want to remind us that uh, I think it was maybe two weeks ago, Pastor Terry mentioned that there's an important difference between the plot of Scripture and the subplots in Scripture. And so it's easy to see and to get caught up, hey, there's sin in this subplot. What good could possibly happen here? And to forget that throughout this whole narrative, there's a plot. Throughout all of Scripture, there's a plot. And the plot, in short, is the glory of God. Everything you read in some way is meant to lead us to understand how glorious God is and that he's made a promise through Abraham that we can have life in him. And he wants that to be accomplished. So even in this chapter, we can lose sight of that plot because it's all talking about the subplots. And we forget that even in this sin, God is up to something. And uh, so we're going to talk about that a little bit more. I just want to highlight um, Jacob for a bit because most of this passage is about the sons. And from this point on into Genesis, it's more about the sons than it is about Jacob. It's starting to change the focus at this point in the book. The evil nature of chapter 34 is highlighted by the fact of how Genesis 33 ends. If you remember last week, we've been hearing this beautiful story kind of of redemption of Jacob being uh, reconciled with Esau and of him knowing the promise to enter the promised land, to have descendants. And uh, in Genesis 33, verse 20, the last chapter, the last verse before chapter 34, we read that Jacob built an altar and called it God, the God of Israel. Like This is what I'm supposed to remember from this. Our, our life belongs to you. This is what this altar is gonna help us remember. So now think about this. We had that verse, and now we read the next verse, and it's so easy to forget that there's many years that took place between those two verses. And what we know is this. Whether it was sinful, I don't know, but I don't think it was necessarily the wisest thing that Jacob chose to buy land by the city of Shechem. It would be very similar to Lot choosing to live in Sodom. It wasn't necessarily an evil decision, but it probably wasn't the wisest decision because living there starts having an influence on the family. 
We don't know much about what Dinah was doing. Again, not saying right or wrong, but we know that she was going into the, the place to meet other people. She was probably being part of their culture, part of their celebrations. Again, it might not have been evil, but it probably wasn't the wisest thing. And then the next thing we hear about Jacob is that, is that he, when the sons commit the murder, he says to them, what have you done? Now, now I'm going to be retaliated against. Now we're in danger again. And what we see is that he hasn't been keeping his focus on the promise of God. That through his family, if they stay true to that covenant and keep themselves separate until Christ comes through that line, that it's his responsibility to keep the promised people pure with God. And he doesn't even think about that anymore. He's now just worried about retaliation. He was okay with the idea that if this had gone through, we would become one with them. Do you understand that if, we were to, if this had gone through and the, the marriage agreement had been made and the people from Israel had married Shechem and all the people of the, of the city, the family line of Jesus would have been perverted. It would have led to the breaking of the promise of God. And that wasn't in the mind of Jacob. He didn't see that as a danger. And so um, it's, it's really, really sad, the story that we see of Jacob's life. And the next chapter, the next very verses where God says to him, go to Bethel and make another altar. And then he, he, it says that he tells the people, get rid of all the idols. So this whole situation is showing us that while God is transforming Jacob, He's still got a lot of baggage that needs to be dealt with. The encouraging thing for us is that it's very true of us as well. God does some magnificent things that we can tell stories about that really do share his glory. And yet there are still sins in me that God is slowly working on. I'm probably, I'm hindering him. But the message is God isn't hindered by our sin. He works in it. He's still transforming us. He's made a promise to transform us and he will complete that when we see Christ face to face. He had made a promise to Abraham and that promise was going to be fulfilled even though they, by their actions, were in danger of breaking it from a human perspective. The most horrific thing in this chapter is not the rape of Dinah, It's not the killing of all the people. It's not the taking of the wives and the children to be their own. The most horrific thing is that the covenant of God was being treated lightly, almost despised. The brothers took what God had given as a a symbol of beauty, of love, of intimacy, of commitment, circumcision, to say, you're part of my family, and through you I will bring salvation to the world. They took that sign... And they used it for deceit and treachery and to destroy. So again, can you see how when we get just in the subplots and we just see, well, there's the rape, there's the murder, but it's the plot that always matters the most. And that's what the most horrific thing in this chapter is, is that the the covenant of God was not even cared about. So praise God that he is sovereign over everything. And that's the next point, sin and the sovereignty of God. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we would all be lost in terrible sin. And God made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, I will give you as many descendants as stars in the sky, I will give you as many descendants as sand on, on the shore, 
I will bring you into a promised land. Through you there will be a king. Through that king there will be salvation for you and your people and to all the world. And that's what we need to remember is that when we read part of the Old Testament, we can get caught up in God's chosen people and and that's very important to know but we need to remember that there was only a chosen people because Jesus had to be born through a family. And what we also need to remember is God is very clear that these chosen people were not worthy of Jesus. God was faithful to his promise to Abraham and that's why he worked. This chapter alone would show us, wow, these chosen people, if if that's what it means to be a chosen person, why would I ever want to be a chosen person? That's horrific. Similar things might be said of the church today when they see certain things that churches and Christians do. If that's what it is to be a Christian, why would I want to be a Christian? I am so amazed at the patience of God. I'm amazed, first of all, in my own life. And then I'm amazed when I look at the world around. I think so many things are done in your name by your people, and they're just bad. But the Lord knows those things, and he doesn't endorse them, but he's able to work through them. And that's the key thing to remember right now is orchestrating the use of sin is not the same thing as endorsing sin. Okay, so when sin takes place, God can use that to accomplish his big means, the big plot, but he's not endorsing the activities that are taking place. Those are totally different things. We have to remember that his orchestration of sin is not endorsing it. So in other ways, in another word in this chapter, there is no praise for the brother's plan. Now you can imagine in hindsight, maybe you know, a little bit down the road as they go back to Bethel and they start remembering about the covenant promise of God and how important it is that they stay uh, uh, united with God and, and just be pure, they might look back and say, oh, Remember over there, we were almost, we almost became one with those people. Remember after they raped Dinah and then they came to us and said, we'll give you anything you want and we can become one. If we hadn't done what we did, the covenant would have been broken. Praise God that we killed everybody. Praise God that we did all that because because of that, the covenant was saved. Can you imagine that? People thinking that because you did sin and God still did something through that, good, that you could now praise the sin. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home because that hopefully will not be any of our experiences. But maybe for some of us, we're in different situations and maybe one of it is financial. And we look at the finances that we have and we say, you know what, this is a little bit of a gray area, but if I go down this road, which I'm not sure is good, I'll have more money And if I have more money, I can give to the church or a charity. And if I give to the charity, they can use it for this purpose and they wouldn't have otherwise been able to do it. So maybe maybe that was your plan and, and those things end up happening. But heaven forbid that you would ever think that because of your sin earlier on, God was able to do something. Lord, you needed me to sin. If it wasn't for that, you wouldn't have been able to do what you wanted to do. That is never part of the equation. That never, never is how God thinks. You know, throughout, this is the starting point of a theme that goes throughout the rest of Genesis. What you meant for evil, God means for good. Key phrase that Joseph will say in Genesis 50 verse 20, as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. 
again, when those things take place, what we need to know as believers, when you see things that happen that are horrific, and you say, what's just happened? The testimony of this is, of Christ has just been so blemished, or whatever's happened, it's just wrong. Yeah, understand that when evil happens, it's wrong. But also know that God is not hindered by that. He can work through that. And, and it may be hard for us to understand, so I just want to leave us with this thought, and this is always for Christians. Whenever we struggle in life, the Bible clearly says, fix your eyes on Christ, the initiator and perfecter of your faith. When you do that, usually wisdom for the next step becomes clearer. So now when we think about chapter 34 and we see all this evil and say, what good can come of that? We now hopefully have come to remember that although God didn't endorse any of that to happen, it's saying that was good, he did orchestrate it to make sure that the line of Judah stayed pure and that the prominent covenant to Abraham could still go through that family so that Christ could be born so that all nations could be blessed. How can God do that? Well, then look at again at the life of Jesus Christ. Look at the Son of God who came to earth with not any sin, who came pure, best person who's ever walked this planet. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Who would not love this person? You know who wouldn't? To some degree, all of us didn't because our sins were had to be laid upon him. And beyond the time he lived on earth, think about those last days, how he was treated, how his hair was ripped out of his face, he was spit upon, he was whipped, he was mocked, he was put on the cross. Now, none of those things pleased God in the sense that, yes, that's what I want to happen, but we all know that in the sovereignty of God, that those things took place, God worked through the devil's plans to bring salvation to the world, and when the devil thought he won, God just said, the victory's just been finalized. Always remember that God has a plan. No matter what you're experiencing, God has a plan. And our role is to trust him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as, uh, as I close this portion of, uh, of the service and prayer. And uh, so just please pray with me now. Father, we are so thankful for your word. And uh, there are portions of it, Lord. When we read, we just don't know how to interpret it at first. But Lord, always give us the reminder and the trust that your word is good, that it's good for us to read these things, even when they're hard, so that we can understand the God you are and that you can work through anything. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is holy and true, that you are light and love, that you are not dark and evil that you never entertain those thoughts nor want us to, but when darkness happens, when evil happens, you are not put in some sort of a box. You don't have to change your plans. You already knew it was going to take place, and you have been sovereign over everything. And your ultimate goal is always to be glorified so that people might know you, that people might come and just give their lives to you so that they could move from death to life, from darkness to light. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word that helps us know you. And use us, Lord, to make yourself known, especially in those times where darkness is so evident. Help us not to retaliate in kind, 
in, in evil or in hatred, but help us to respond in love and truth. Thank you for the God that you are, and thank you for who we can be because of you. And thank you that you offer yourself to everyone. In the precious name of Christ, amen.